Life on the Edge is sponsored by Trust for London and is brought to you by Ice and Fire, the UK's leading human rights theatre company. But that's how you have to do it if you can't do what the norm, what the so-called norm is. The norm to me is a programme on a washing machine. That's what normal is. There's no such thing as the normal. <laughs> no, I'll agree with that. <laughs> Welcome to Life on the Edge, the podcast where we share with you the hidden struggles of ordinary people. I'm Helen Clapp. Back in episode one, we met Bob, Jane and Mary. A freak accident left Jane with a serious and permanent brain injury. Mary had worked for years until a condition affecting her hands cut her working life short. And Bob, well, Bob used to be a WWF wrestler until illness struck and a life in the ring turned into a life in and out of hospital. They all turned to the benefit system and found that getting help was much harder than they thought. If you haven't listened to episode one in the first series of Life on the Edge, and you aren't clued up on the UK disability benefit system, and you aren't the only one, maybe give that a listen first, and we'll see you back here in an hour. Since 2013, the Department of Work and Pensions, or DWP if you love an acronym as much as we do, began the rollout of something called Universal Credit. You might have heard about it. It brings together a range of working age benefits into a single payment, including ESA, the one that's for people who are ill or disabled, and it's been widely trialled across the country. A recent damning report by Philip Alston, the UN Special Rapporteur on Extreme Poverty and Human Rights, documented the profoundly detrimental effects of the rollout on UC, that's Universal Credit, claimants with vulnerabilities, disabilities and health conditions, even linking it to an increased suicide risk. Despite this, around 750,000 chronically ill and disabled claimants are expected to transfer onto universal credit from this year. With this in mind, we're bringing you two more stories of people whose working lives were cut short and their desperate struggle to get the help they needed. That was me in Shirley Oaks Children's Home in the um, community hall and the legs competition. I was just about to say, your legs look amazing. Did you win? No. <laughs> what? She won. No, yours are much nicer. <laughs> <laughs> She's got shaped legs. Mine, I used to call mine drain pipes with knots in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> I met Ruth, not her real name, at her house in South East London, surrounded by paperwork from the Department of Work and Pensions. It's easy to like Ruth. She's warm and quick-witted. You'd want her on your side in any battle. I've been in and out of care, and I thought, basically, if I don't get away from this house and get away from my father, who was a heavy drinker, my mother was put on Niodel, Librium, Valium. So, of course, um, half the time she didn't know who we were. She went, which one are you then? I'm the oldest one, you know, that type of thing. She had to grow up pretty fast, and taking care of her eight siblings from a young age, Ruth didn't have an easy start in life. Everything that I'm entitled to, I've had to fight for. Nothing's come easy. So you had experience of taking Control. responsibility and mm. looking after people and really growing up from a really I never had a childhood, mm. so that was the truth. Old head on young shoulders, mm. and that's how it was. And you just had to get on with it. There wasn't money about. The boys used to nick off the milkman. They literally used to nick them. There was a few of them. There were six boys, and... You know, they would nick a pint of milk, they'd nick a loaf of bread. I'm going to do a book, and um, it's called So You Think You Had It Hard. 
At 12 years old, in and out of care homes, and in her words, worried how she'd turn out if that cycle continued, she put herself in care and stayed there. But when she left school at nearly 15, with undiagnosed dyslexia, unable to properly read and write, she was sent back to the family home. And I was tossed straight back to the violence, straight back to all of it. There wasn't much from Daddy couldn't turn his hand at painting, decorating. He was very popular, pub angel, home devil. He called me his chicken, but yet he would quite easily take a belt off and double it and double it and, and belt me with it. You just grow into it because it was a love-hate relationship. We wasn't allowed to disclose anything. What went on in that house, stayed in the house. So it was all very secretive and it's affected me now mm-hmm. that I don't trust and don't want to make friends and because, you know... you if they're judging you or whatever it may be. Still living at home, she started dating a guy she'd met through working at Tesco's. Uh, He was 21 and I was only just 16. And obviously he wanted sex and everything. And I, Catholic girl, wasn't, you know, too up on all of that scene. Anyway, we had a Christmas party and I went there and he kept wanting to go and babysit with me. And I said, no, 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 no. So he mixed my drinks all night. And I was put to sleep in a little passageway and he interfered with me. So the consequences was that that I'd got pregnant. And because of my upbringing, my religion, I could have gone and had an abortion, but I think that would have been too easy. And I took the harder road and I had the child. And my father wouldn't let me have the child. So then I had to have a private adoption. So I had a private adoption, which broke my heart. And I knew that at that time, I didn't have anywhere to live. I didn't have any money. So I had to give him up and go back to work a couple of weeks after. Because of my dyslexia, I didn't know that there's a such thing as a maternity. But a book was sent through to the house and my mother forged it and collected the money every week. She moved out and rented a room. Ruth was always working, in a kitchen hardware shop, making pastry in a pie shop. Despite her difficulties reading and writing, she never struggled to find a job. I would get the job flying colours, I'd be dressed well, I'd speak well, I'd come across well, and then they'd hand me a form to just quickly fill in, well, now I'm having a nightmare, and I go into a panic attack, because... I'd rather do five rounds with somebody, literally, than have to be put, because I would feel embarrassed the minute somebody knows that. They're inclined to speak down to you. They're inclined to think you're an idiot and take you for an idiot. And I won't tolerate that. So I would say, God, is that the time I'll I'll have to take this and I'll have to come back? So then I'd have to go home and get it filled in and then fetch it back or post it back. On the till, I was fine. My memory, being a dyslexic, see, not all about being a dyslexic is wrong because I have a memory and I could tell you the price of everything in the shop. And I used to call it the Tesco chorus and the girls would be like, Rita, yes, how much is the baked beans? I thought, don't none of you talk, you'll sing. (laughs) I go, one and six. (laughs) She helped her friend turn their business into a second-hand shop Worked in a pub at Rolls-Royce Silver Service Catering, ironing at a South Kensington Cleaners. Hand presser for all the yuppies. You remember that rose upstairs, downstairs? 
her ironing her husband's shirts. But the minute they got wind that I couldn't read or write, I would leave. I'm too proud. And it's like I've got this big sin, this secret that I have to hide from everybody. And it's only since my my fight with my own children that I came out. It's like coming out if you were gay. It's as simple as that. So when I hear about someone's come out, I think, oh, I know how brave that must have been. That must have been hard. And how did you enjoy school? Did you no, I weren't very good at school. I did enjoy what, what schooling I did get. And I left school without any kind of qualifications because I left at 15. I wasn't naughty, but I was the sort of child that got into trouble for being funny, if you get what I mean. I'd laugh at silly things and, you know, do stupid things, but I wasn't a destructive person or I wasn't a vindictive person or anything like that. I never got into trouble for not doing my work or anything like that. It was just that I was a little bit disruptive in the class. Mm. Bit of a joker. Yeah, yeah. Meet Sharon. We chatted in her living room over a cup of tea while her grandson played on his tablet and polished off the last of the chocolate hobnobs. Like Ruth, Sharon comes from a big family. We've like a three-storey house not far from here and, um, you know, we lived with grandparents and my uncles and aunts and stuff. My mum was a single mum, so, you know, we, we was raised by our mum and then she remarried again and we had, she had another two children. But how many were of you There's were six of us, yeah. Work was a big part of Sharon's life from a young age. My first job, really, was during the summer holidays at school when I used to go and do chambermaiding because money was so tight and it was just, if I wanted anything, I had to work for it. And I think I was about 13 when I started doing that. And, you know, you could go into one job and walk walk out of that job and get into another job. You didn't have to have qualifications. Somebody would train you how to do that job and that was it. That's what you did. She was always working, packing in a glass factory, in a laundry pressing pillowcases and sheets at McVitie's. I had various jobs, I had loads of jobs. Yeah, I enjoyed work, I enjoyed it. As a teenager, she moved to Dublin. I met a fella and fell in love and, yeah. How did you meet him? Tell me about him. I met him through my brother. What drew you to him? Was he quite charming? No, I think it's just the accent, I think, that, that, (laughs) that got me. (laughs) <laughs> you know the accent, and then like he was a he was he was a quite a lot older than me. He was twenty three, and I was like sixteen, I think, at the time. Yeah, but my mum didn't approve. You know, my dad didn't approve. So it was like, oh well, I'm gonna go and do what I want to do. When you think you know it all at that age, don't you? But you don't really. It's, and I just went off, and I, you know, I did miss my family a lot. Mm-hmm. And in the end, up I had to come home because I just couldn't hack it anymore. It was just um, too much being away from the family. You know, if you needed anything or you needed a shoulder to cry on, I think you just need your family around Mm. you. Even if you do argue and fight, you know, they're always there for you. Not long after she arrived back in London, she started to realise something was different. I was pregnant and I didn't realise I was pregnant until I I was getting sick and stuff. You know, I was getting more than sickness at the time. I didn't realise it was that. And um, that was it, really. I was 18 and one month when I had him. He was the first grandchild and the first great-grandchild. So, you know, he got spoiled rotten, really. But despite support from her family, life was hard as a young single mum. I got postnatal depression really bad. Good job I had my mum and my family. And then back in them days, he was born in 1980. 
My mum was still a single parent, there was, you know, most of them were at home. We had no electricity. Our electric got cut off. With a newborn child, I had to feed him in candlelight. I was really in de bad depression. I weren't in good, good health after having him. So that was um, horrendous, the beginning of, 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 of that chapter of my life. A few years later, she had her second child, moved in with her partner and his two children from a previous relationship, and for a while they were a family. But when his ex-wife died... He just went to pot, and he started drinking, and I was left on my own again. But I didn't only have my own two kids, I had two, his two children as well, and I raised him. And I was on benefits as well at that time, and I was struggling. But he became uh, dependent on drink and cocaine, drugs. Things just went escalated and I had to ban him from coming round to the house and stuff like that, so I couldn't have him round the children like that. And sometimes he became violent and I had to get a restraining order against him. Finding herself a single mum again, this time to four children, she got a part-time job with Meals on Wheels, working when her kids were at school, and from there became a dinner lady. When I went into the kitchens... Being a, a, a person that comes from a big family and children of my own, I knew exactly what I was doing. Did you enjoy working in that in, I in loved the kitchens it. with the kids and everything? Yeah, 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 I loved it. I, when I was when I was in work, I enjoyed it, and I wouldn't have done it for that long if I didn't enjoy it. But then, like I said, I had this accident in the kitchen, and I haven't really been at work since mm. then. She slipped on the tiled floor damaging the discs in her spine, and months later started getting long-term problems. That was 20 years ago, and unable to go back to work... I was put onto a benefit called uh, Incapacity Benefit. He was signed off of work, you know, and I just had to keep sending in medical forms and stuff. Then I went from there on to Disability Benefit. That's about 15 years ago. Over the years, her health has gone from bad to worse. Arthritis is setting. I've got spondylitis of the spine, and it affects not just one area. It just it affects everywhere. I've got diabetes. Then I got diagnosed with osteoritis. Going down the line, it's just got worse and worse. Then I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. I can't really pronounce it because it's a long word, and I can't get my head around it. But it's a crippling illness. I mean, some days you're okay, other days you're not. And it can hit you at any time. And is it pain? It's just, it's like a bad dose of the flu and you're just aching all over. I've been in and out of hospital. I've had six major operations. So I've been through a lot, you know. We'll find out what happened to Sharon a little later on. But when we last heard from Ruth, after giving up her son for adoption, she was living on her own and working full time. And then I'd found out then I was pregnant for Tracy, my daughter. I had a relationship. I met him from the shop and we'd been courting and I was on the pill, but I only have to look at a penis and I'd get pregnant and anyway. <laughs> that's that. <laughs> I was pregnant, I was getting sick. It was four years since my last pregnancy and I was not letting this one be taken from me. And I'd already proven to myself that I can survive the relationship lasted until their second child was a toddler when she found out he was cheating on her. With two young children and rent to pay, Ruth got a job in a cafe. And I was with all these riff-raff workmen farting and coughing and spluttering around and cracking jokes. 
And I'd never laughed so much in all my life. It was so funny. And I, I become a comedian for about a year. <laughs> I'd get up at five in the morning. My brother would come to live with me because he was homeless. So he would take them to nursery at eight, but I'd have to be at work at seven. And I would do some prepping and maybe do put a wash on and get things done. I'd finish at half two, go and have a half a Guinness, where my brother used to drink, rush down there, pick them up, get them home, get them their tea, washed everything that they needed, hang up a wash, get everything popped around and do what I can. And I'd have to be down in Battersea in the Duke of Wellington pub from seven till 12 to do those shifts. And I'd done that for about a year just to make ends meet. She started a new relationship and they moved in together. Her new partner was great with the two children, but begged Ruth for a kid of his own. Eventually, she agreed, and along came twins. He'd always had a difficult relationship with alcohol, but after the twins came along, things went from bad to worse. And he'd come home half past three, four o'clock, but I didn't know that he finished at 12 and he'd been in the pub for three or four hours, then he'd bring in a party for. And then, you know, after a couple of hours, he couldn't speak. She decided enough was enough and moved herself and her four children into a house on their own. Within six weeks, I was, my babies were six weeks in the August 82, and we'd separated. We had a five-year-old and a a four-year-old, and the twins were six weeks old. My mother-in-law used to come in here and help me with my twins, my ex-mother-in-law, but I love her dearly. I keep my mother-in-laws and get rid of the men. With four young children to look after, she worked as a registered childminder for Wandsworth Council. That's how I survived. And then I found out my children had dyslexia and I had a five-year battle with Wandsworth Council that I practically nearly had a nervous... Oh, I did have a nervous breakdown. At the end of it, I couldn't decide what clothes to put on. When she says she had a battle, she really means it. She had her children privately assessed, applied to schools all over the country, took the kids out of school and had them home tutored for a while, got the ombudsman involved, wrote to Parliament, researched the Education Act, I told you you'd want her in your corner in a fight, and all with limited literacy skills because of her dyslexia. When a letter was to come through the door, I used to panic and you'd want to have that letter addressed and sent off straight away but it would take me two days three days I'd have to look in a dictionary I'd have to look at something that was already written down and use their words rather than my words to try and get myself across Mm. so it was horrendous absolutely horrendous Mm. I'd rather go out and fight fight ten men than have to do it with all that pressure exacerbated by going through the menopause Ruth had a mini stroke and a nervous breakdown. That's when that all started happening to me, that I couldn't even get dressed or couldn't make a decision what clothes to wear. I wouldn't come out of the bedroom, uh, wouldn't go out, wouldn't socialise, wouldn't mix, and sunk very low. And it took a long time for me to get back. She'd had a car accident in 2007, the after-effects of which left her struggling with fibroneuralgia and arthritis. And, like Sharon, she was put onto incapacity benefit... Then, a few years ago, the system changed and they were both called in for a work capability assessment. We'll be back to the story in just a moment, but first, thanks for taking the time to listen to Life on the Edge from Ice and Fire. And if you'd like to join in the conversation, we're on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at Ice and Fire UK. And you can also email us on podcast at iceandfire.co.uk. 
If you want to hear more, Series 1 of Life on the Edge, sponsored by Trust for London, is available on Apple Podcasts, online via our website, isonfire.co.uk, or wherever you downloaded this episode. There are more coming soon, so make sure you hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Lastly, if you could take a moment to rate and review us, we'd be really grateful. It really does help get the word out there. Now, back to the story. When we left Sharon and Ruth, they were both about to go in for their work capability assessments. What's that, you ask? Well, here's a little flashback from episode one. Before you go in for your assessment, you'll have completed a 25-page ESA 50 questionnaire, where you're asked about how your ability to do certain tasks is affected by your disability. During the work capability assessment, the assessor looks at your ability to carry out a list of 17 activities, including standing and sitting, getting about, reaching, and manual dexterity. Each activity has a list of descriptors, and each descriptor is worth a number of points. For example, under the reaching descriptor, you score a maximum of 15 points if you cannot raise either arm as if to put something in the top pocket of a coat or jacket or nine points if you cannot raise either arm to the top of your head as if to put on a hat. In order to be awarded ESA, you must score at least 15 points across the whole assessment. The assessment is carried out by a healthcare professional, by a private firm called Maximus, on behalf of the DWP. The Maximus healthcare professional will then send their report to the DWP, where a decision maker will decide if you qualify for ESA. Ruth and Sharon went along to their assessments, and Sharon's assessor seemed kind and understanding. She was lovely. She was I can't, you know, she was just a, a, nice, a nice lady. Mm. She's just doing her job. They do ask you, can you do this, can you do that? And they do say to you, if you can't do it, then don't do it. I just yeah. answered the questions as honestly as I could, and that was all, and then it was goodbye. Ruth's asked her to complete various physical tasks. Well, I got up when she told me to get up and go and sit on this bed thing. So then she told me to lift up my legs. So I lifted up my legs and I really tried, but it was hurting my back. But I'd done it. Then she told me to do these other things. And I'd done what I could and I tried. Now, I can't do that every day. When I went home, I weren't able to move for a week. To qualify for ESA and continue receiving disability benefit, they needed to score 15 points. Ruth was awarded nine points. And Sharon... I never got one point. And they, uh, you know, declared me fit for work. It's not like I'm saying, oh, I've got a bad back, oh, I've got, um, I've got anxiety, or oh, I've got this. All the proof is there in writing. Every bit of documentation that I needed to prove myself was given to them, and yet I've got no points. This is from Ruth's appeal letter. Although your doctor may have given you a valid Med 3 fit certificate, the determination of a limited capability for work is made by the Secretary of State and the test is the work capability assessment. You fail to score the required number of points. Accordingly, you do not have a limited capability for work, despite the Med 3 fit certificate. So despite both Ruth and Sharon having medical certificates from their doctors saying they were unfit for work, they were both deemed by the Work Capability Assessment as fit for work, and Ruth and Sharon's disability benefit was stopped, and they had to sign on at the job centre and follow all the job centre rules in order to claim Job Seekers Allowance, £73.10 per week. 
they rang me up and told me that I'd be moving from ESA to Job Seekers Alliance because they found me fit for work. They didn't give me any explanation. It was like, oh my God, what am I going to do now? Sharon turned to Z2K, a charity we chatted to in episode one of Life on the Edge, that provides free advice and support for people with household debt, housing or welfare problems, and they helped her appeal the decision. But they also explained that until she had a tribunal date through for her appeal, she would have to continue to sign on at the job centre and look for work. Back at the job centre... They said to me that right, they were going to send me this CV and I had to go on job search. You have to go on the internet. And I don't really know a lot about the internet. My three-year-old is better at it than I am. I'm not work shy. I would love to go back to work. I'd love to go back into the community and be myself. But I, I cannot be that reliable person anymore that can get out of bed and get myself dressed and get myself sorted out so that I can go back into the community and be in a job. But I don't think they do realise how ill you are when, you know, they try to get you back onto Job Seekers Allowance and they struggle going through this process. It depresses me and I've been reduced to tears. You know, I've got to the stage where I just didn't want to be it no more. Ruth was also having to sign on at the job centre every fortnight and look for work. At one particular appointment... I said, I felt unwell, I wanted to go to the toilet. I've got a weak bowel, I've had an operation on it. And I asked if I could use the toilet, and they said, no, I couldn't. These were for the staff only. And I had an accident, and I had to walk all the way home. And I just cried all the way home. I got home to find out that I'd been sanctioned, and I have to live on £28 a week. Do you know what they sanctioned you for? Yes, the computer asked her, is she sitting there now? And she said no. A sanction is when a claimant's benefits are cut when they are allegedly not following job centre rules. The UK's most extensive study of benefit sanctions, the Welfare Conditionality Project, recently gave evidence to the Work and Pensions Committee that this approach does not move disabled people into work and benefit sanctions for this group are inappropriate and routinely trigger profoundly negative personal, financial, health and behavioural outcomes. But they sanctioned me for 13 weeks. I had to go to food bank, live on £28 a week, no gas, no electric. You feel suicidal. You just don't know what to do. So, yeah, you can't get out of it. You can't see any way out of it. Alongside the sanction, Ruth's benefits were cut by £400 a month, leaving her just over £200 a month to live on. This was just before Christmas that I got the information. You didn't get a letter. You just went to PayPoint and it just wasn't there. So any existing bills and any money you thought you could pay a bill with, that didn't happen. So that means you can't have your special diets, your special fruits that you're supposed to have. You can't buy your pads. You can't heat your house. The house isn't hot. I know it isn't because it's not on. I've had a cold for four weeks and I haven't been able to get rid of it. Z2K helped Ruth and Sharon appeal against their decisions. It's a long process with plenty of hoops to jump through, and for many of the steps, there's no time limit on how long it takes. To get a date for an appeal tribunal can take months. When I met Sharon, her tribunal date was a couple of weeks away. It just adds more depression to me and anxiety and just, you know, the dread of it all. A few weeks later, I met Sharon, her daughter and her legal representative from a local law firm at the courthouse in central London. It's not what it sounds like. 
There are no men in wigs, gavels and majestic oak benches. Aside from the metal detector in the foyer, it's a normal-looking office building, and the tribunals happen in small, stuffy rooms either side of a large table. On the opposite side of the table sat a doctor and a judge, and all the questions were about how Sharon was at the time of the work capability assessment, five months before the tribunal. There was no recording allowed in the tribunal, so I took notes. Here's one of our lovely actors from Actors for Human Rights with some of the questions they had for Sharon. On a scale of 0 to 10, how were you feeling five months ago? Do you use a wheelchair when you go out? You said at the assessment that you drove to Sainsbury's. How much time would you spend in Sainsbury's? Do you use the trolley as a prop to get about? Then the questions started to get even more strange. If I left a cap in front of you on the table and asked you to lift it up and put it on your head, could you? I see your hair is nicely combed today. Did you do that this morning? Let me explain. At one point during her work capability assessment back in October, Sharon tucked her hair behind her ear. From this simple action, the assessor concluded that she could push herself in her wheelchair, something that, if she did, would leave her with debilitating pain in her hands. Both professionals were kind and understanding, but there were probing questions about incontinence and times when she'd lost her temper in public and made a scene because of her pain. Afterwards, we were told the decision would be posted either the next day, a Friday, or Monday, and Sharon headed home facing an anxious wait and potentially a very long weekend. The following week, I caught up with her on the phone to see whether she'd had a decision. Hello? Hi, Sharon. It's Helen from Ice and Fire. Oh, hello. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. I asked her how she felt the day of the tribunal. Oh, I was shaking like a leaf. It was really stressful for me. It was like even that morning, the anxiety was just over the top. It was nerve-wracking for me and I was shaking all the way through. The letter didn't arrive until after the weekend. I didn't get it until the Tuesday, so the next two days was horrific, you know, just waiting for that dreaded envelope to come in the door. And then like when I opened it, it was another thing. I was just shaking like a leaf. You don't want to open it, but you, you have to open it sort of yeah. thing, you know? So what does the letter say? It just says, um, oh, I've got it here in front of me. I had to read through quite a lot before they got to the point. It don't say, oh, you've won your case or anything like that. It just says 15 points. 15 points means that she qualifies for ESA, and having been placed in the support group, she won't need to go through any work-related activities or be reassessed for a while. I don't have to worry about it for, for two years, and um, it's, it's, a, it's a load off my mind. It's like a cloud over you and you just can't get rid of it, you know, it's worrying. Yeah, I've turned to, to go back to my swimming now because I haven't been swimming for a long time, and that keeps me going, you know. It's good for my mobility as well. Oh my God, I could go on holiday right now. Sign the sun. It's so good for me. So, so good for me. When I last spoke to Ruth, she was still waiting for her tribunal. She wasn't feeling positive about it, and after such a long battle, it really seemed to have taken it out of her. Oh, I'm not the same girl anymore. It knocks your spirit away, because I was the life and soul of the party. I would play tennis, I would play darts, I'd go out. I used to run for South London as a youngster, swim for South London. I'm always up doing something, I'm always being positive, I think forever forward, don't go backwards. And it made me quiet, it made me a bit introvert, made me that I didn't want to talk. I mean, I'm a lot better now that I didn't want to talk and I would have got all 
upset over doing this, but I have bigger reasons why this should be brought out for the for the good of us all. So I know that it doesn't matter what I feel, I've got to do it. Towards the end of our time together, Ruth started to talk about her eldest son, who you might remember she'd had to give up for adoption when she was just 16. I found out he was living in Wimbledon. So my best friend and I used to go up there and just sit outside and just look. And then we thought we might talk to a priest or, you know, somebody could go through with us. Anyway, I couldn't do it. It was all at the wrong time. I thought his 21st birthday's coming up. I can't go barging into his life and upset that. So nothing seemed to be right. And I'd left it. And then my daughter got pregnant and had her first child. Well, my daughter realised the pain of losing my son. So she went and knocked on the door and she said, I'm your sister. And then she came back armed with baby pictures and pictures of what he's like now. Well, he's stunning. He's got black hair, big blue eyes. He's the image of my father. And he's very similar to the other two boys. He's got this ringlet. When my hair gets wet, I go like Shirley Temple. And that's what he is. And he had it down to him. And then I'd got the phone number. And I said, would you mind if we met? How was it that first time that you saw him? Emotional. Mm-hmm. We hugged. You never stop loving that child. As much as you think you're going to have another child and that might heal the pain, it doesn't. Mm-hmm. It just, it just, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was lovely all round. And then we had a big Christmas party here. And we were all partying and dancing. It was, it was great. And it has been ever since. That that made me feel complete because there was a big empty void and it was filled. Over the next few years, if the rollout continues as planned, everyone currently claiming ESA will move on to universal credit. One benefit, applied for and managed online, it's the biggest overhaul of the system since the introduction of ESA and the work capability assessments. What difference will it make to some of the most vulnerable people in our society? disabled people who need our help and support. Well, it's a case of watch this space. Here are Ruth and Sharon with the final word. Who wants to be in this situation in their right mind? Who wants a handout? Who wants to do that? If there was a way around it, you would, wouldn't you? You wouldn't lower yourself. But if you've paid in your contributions and you're entitled to, you shouldn't have to go through this in any way. I'm all for the benefit system, putting people to work that can go back to work. But what about the people that can't? What about the majority that's got the proof that puts it in front of you, that actually proves that they can't go to work, that they're not reliable people, and that anyone in their right mind would not employ them? So why are you sending them on this journey of literally one door slamming in your face after the other? Putting them through that is just making it worse making the illness worse, making the depression worse, making it harder for the person who's already finding it hard to survive from day to day. And that's all I've got to say about it, really. It's terrible, terrible, really terrible for people like us. You've been listening to Life on the Edge from Ice and Fire, sponsored by Trust for London. Thanks to Sharon, Ruth and Z2K, to Peter for voicing the words of the tribunal doctor and to everyone we spoke to for this episode. And thanks to you for listening. If you want to find out more about the issue, have a look at our show notes. Please do take a second to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. 
If you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at podcast at iceandfire.co.uk and you can also join the conversation on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Ice and Fire UK. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.